Father, we recognize that you are the creator of the universe. You are our God. We also recognize our great need for you and your great love in designing this plan from before the foundations of the earth to send your son to die for our sins and to rise again from the dead. We ask that you teach us today and throughout this series in the Gospel of Mark that we would learn about Jesus, but that we would also draw near to him and experience relationship with him. So teach us now. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So turn to Mark chapter 1, verse 1, page 569 in the Bibles we give away. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. Someone will bring you one. It's our gift to you. We're going to be going through Mark uh, verse by verse. I promise it won't be one verse at a time. I might even do two or three. No, I'm just kidding. But today, we're just looking at the beginning because it really is the introduction to the whole book. We're going to be looking at verse one, and it's, it shows the central focus, which is Jesus. Central focus. You know, uh, this picture, by the way, I don't normally like statues of Jesus because they quite often lead people to worship the statues, which is idolatry. That's a sin. If you look at a picture or anything, but the unique part of Jesus, and that's why I don't think it's wrong to necessarily make a picture of Jesus or something like that, because he did truly become human. So that would be his humanity. But if you worship it, that becomes idolatry. So that's why I typically avoid those things. Okay, you won't see any pictures of Jesus in here and everything, because I don't want to encourage you. But I do have this just because it really shows, you know, this is in Brazil, right? Okay, it shows how at least their desire was to make Jesus the center of their city. And I, and I like that part, okay? So don't worship the statue or the picture. Promise? Okay. But I want us to see that, because Jesus must be the center of our lives, uh, let me. Here's a statement. I will be happy when dot dot dot. Okay. Now you fill in that that question. I will be happy when, and that will determine who your God is. Any answer besides Jesus is idolatry, uh, which will fall short, by the way, of making you happy. And so do you want to be happy? Because I do believe God wants that, but he is the one who brings us our true happiness. Christianity is centered on Jesus. According to Luke 24, verses 25 through 27 and 44, as well as John 5, 39 through 46, the entire Bible is centered on Jesus. The Old Testament and the New Testament, the entire word of God is centered on Jesus. I want to show you an example of a young man who I believe, at least it seems, has Jesus at the center of his life. This happened just this last week. It's true. Just, it's in the news. It was actually on ABC News. The woman who was a, used to be a police officer, went into a, the wrong apartment, killed a man, thought he was 
in her apartment, or at least that's how her story. She, she uh, was convicted and got 10 years in prison, and this is the scene of the brother of the man who was killed and his response to her, and he's 18 years old. Watch this. I can speak for myself. I, I forgive you, and I know if you go to God and ask him, he will forgive you. And I don't think anyone could say it. Again, I'm speaking for myself, not even bad for my family. But I love you just like anyone else. And I'm not going to say I hope you rot and die just like my brother did, but I see, I, I personally want the best for you. And I, I wasn't going to ever say this in front of my family or anyone, but I don't even want you to go to jail. I want the best for you. Because I know that's, what, that's exactly what both of them would want you to do. And the best would be give your life to Christ. I'm not going to say anything else. I think giving your life to Christ would be the best thing that both of them would want you to do. Again, I love you as a person. And I don't wish anything bad on you. I don't know if this is possible, but can, can I give her a hug, please? Please? Yes. Jesus. He's living out the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is at the center of his life. We're going to go through the gospel of Mark, and that's what we want for all of us. Jesus at the center. A fresh understanding and encounter with Jesus as we study his life, I believe, can spark revival. Revival in your own personal life, revival in this church, in this community, and who knows how far it could go. Mark specifically emphasizes the actions of Jesus, which reveals his heart and indicate what we should be focusing on as a church. And so this book is going to build your faith, all right? So look out, (laughs) because it's all about Jesus, And you can't go wrong with that, right? Let's look at our verse. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. 
Now, in this, we're gonna, I'm going to take that first phrase, the beginning of the gospel, and I'm going to look at it last, but it's specifically of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and so first of all, let's look at Jesus. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus, that's the Greek word actually, Jesus in the Greek for the uh, Yeshua, which would be the Hebrew name, which means Yahweh is salvation. So Jesus is the Christ. Christ, Christos, is the Greek word, uh, means anointed one, but it's the Greek word for Messiah or Meshiach in the Hebrew, and it means the anointed one. Uh, So Jesus is this Messiah that the Jewish people have been waiting for. Now, they read their scriptures, what they call the Hebrew scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, and the ancient Jews saw many passages in the Hebrew Bible as referring to the coming Messiah, uh, who would reign forever as the son of David. But they wrestled with how these different passages fit together, because they really wondered how could one man fit these passages. We have passages referring to Jesus as, or Messiah's coming as the conquering king. We have passages referring to him as the priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Passages speaking of him as the prophet like Moses to come. And passages of him as a suffering servant. And so as they're looking at all these passages, they're wondering how can these things come about? How could one man fit all of these scriptures? And they had different ways of answering it. None of them saw that Messiah would come twice. They missed that one, okay? And the reason why is God created it as a mystery. As he revealed these things, he also hid them in the past, only fully revealing them once Jesus came on the scene. And I'll show you why. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 8. In 1 Corinthians 2, Verse 8, Paul is addressing this question. Why the mystery? Why uh, was there this uh, wisdom not fully revealed to them, yet it was revealed in part? In verse 8, it says, none of the rulers of this age. Now, that phrase, rulers of this age, refers to, first of all, the demonic realm. Satan and his demons who are over the rulers who are controlling the world. So they're like puppets to the demonic realm, okay? So the rulers of this age would include both groups, the satanic realm as well as those in whom they're ruling through, so to speak. None of the rulers of this age knew this wisdom, the wisdom he was just talking about in verses 6 and 7, because if they had known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. You see, if they knew exactly the plan, they wouldn't have voluntarily fulfilled the plan. If they knew that by killing Jesus on the cross, that was going to bring about our forgiveness, they would never have killed him on the cross. Yet we see in the Old Testament this when we look at it from the New Testament, we go, of course that was talking about Jesus. All these passages and more, are, of course, are talking about Jesus. They make sense now that the full revelation has come. And so God is brilliant, isn't he? <laughs> Fools and even uses the enemy to bring about his good purposes. 
And so we see here, Jesus is this Messiah, the plan of God to bring about the forgiveness of our sins. And then secondly, we see that Jesus is the Son of God. It says, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, this is also a theme found throughout the Gospel of Mark. That's why this is the really the introduction and title of the whole passage, because we'll see this idea of Jesus as the Son of God throughout the book. In fact, here's a few of them. Chapter 1, verse 11. This is at his baptism. It says, And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. So we see that God the Father speaks with everyone listening, saying Jesus is the Son of God. He is his Son. Look at chapter 3, verse 11. Not only does God the Father declare that Jesus is the Son of God, in chapter 3, 11, it says, whenever the unclean spirits, that's demons, saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the Son of God. So even the demons recognize this. They didn't fully understand it, but they recognized this truth. Look at chapter 9, verse 7. Here, once again at the transfiguration, we hear the voice of the Lord. It says, a cloud appeared overshadowing him, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And so God the Father declares it again. Look at chapter 14, verses 61 and 62. Here, the high priests question him. It says in 61... But he kept silent and did not answer. Again, the high priest questioned him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. He's quoting Daniel chapter 7 there. But notice, the high priest asks him under oath, Are you the Messiah? Are you the Son of God, the Most Blessed One? And his answer was... Yes, I am, right? Okay, it's quite interesting because I remember having a conversation with a Muslim one time and he said, well, if you could show me one verse where it says Jesus is the Son of God, then that would prove that he is. And I showed him all these and he just was kind of silent. You know, I was like, it's over and over just in the Gospel of Mark. Look at the end of Mark in chapter 15, verse 39. It says, when the centurion who was standing opposite him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. And here we see even the man responsible for making sure that he died on the cross recognizes and declares he is the son of God. And so we see this idea of the son of God. And by that, it is referring to his unique relationship with the father. Okay. Jesus has a unique relationship with the Father because he is the only begotten Son. He is eternally the Son of God in that relationship between Father and Son. There wasn't a time in which he was not. Okay, He's always been the Son of God in that personal relationship with the Father and with the Holy Spirit, the doctrine of the Trinity. And so we see that he has this unique relationship with God as Father. Though we can become 
children of God through adoption, we're not eternally that way, and we're not even born that way, okay? You're not born a Christian. You're not born a child of God. In fact, until you repent of your sins and place your faith in Jesus Christ, outwardly confessing that in baptism, that's when you're born again. That's when he adopts you into his family and you become a child of God, according to the Scriptures. So there's a difference in that relationship. John, actually, in the Gospel of John, he brings out this difference in one way. He chooses throughout the Gospel of John and in all of his writings, okay, John only reserves the word huios, that's the Greek word for son, he only reserves that for Jesus. He never calls us huioses, okay? He calls us technion, children of God. So he has a different word for us, and he does that all the way through his gospel and his letters in order to make this distinction uh, that Jesus is the eternally begotten one. We are adopted. And by the way, to be adopted is a really awesome thing, okay? Uh, I was at a conference. Paul and I went to a, uh, a conference. This is, that's why I was gone last week, and we were at the conference on healing. It was actually a wonderful, amazing conference. I wanted to take Paul because I wanted a doctor's perspective you know, on healing. But anyway, so, uh, but it was a great conference, but this uh, lady named Christine Kane, she was one of the speakers of the conference, and she shared her story, which was really, really incredible. Someone who was just absolutely you know, devastated, all kinds of terrible things happening to her and how God can restore and use and all that kind of thing. But part of her story was when she was 30 in Australia, you, uh, they changed the law and they, so they sent everyone who was adopted their original birth certificates. Well, so at age 30, she found out she was adopted she didn't know it. Her dad had already died, and mom never told her either. So she, her and her brother were both devastated by that, you know, by the fact that they didn't tell her, you know. Which, so she, but on the birth certificate, it says, reason for giving her up, it said, they wrote one word, unwanted. That's what it said. I mean, this is what she gets on the thing. This is, this is, this is who you are unwanted. Now, her, her parents chose her, so she was wanted by them, right? But God, the Father, chose her. She is wanted. And that's the gospel. If you are born again, God chose you as his own. You are wanted by the Father. I do want to ask, um, if there's anyone here, perhaps you struggle with the concept of God as your father because you have, maybe you've, you're being raised, your parents, you didn't have a really good relationship there. I know for me, I had a lousy relationship with my father. Never told me he loved me. Never touched me except for to hit me. Uh, I, I, it wasn't until before he, just before he died we reconciled and really were able to, because he became a Christian, etc. So I kind of know that feeling a little bit. So if that's you, if you've struggled to 
the concept of God as your father because of perhaps your earthly father's relationship. Not to embarrass you or anything, but I want to pray for you. If, if you would raise your hand, I'm going to pray for you right now. Okay, is there anyone? Okay. Okay. All right, I, I'm going to pray for you right now, okay? Well, Father, here are these people. And uh, I'm pretty sure all the ones that I saw raise their hand, they do know you. They've been adopted. They're your kids. and Yet they're struggling with this. And because of their previous things happening, they're like, oh, Holy Spirit, I pray, come upon them right now. And flood their souls with the love of Jesus. Help them to see that though their earthly father may have failed them, that you will never fail them. That you are faithful, that you love them, and you will see them to the end. Help them to see you as their daddy who really does love them. Bless them with this, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. This understanding as Jesus is the unique son and that we're adopted into the family, picked by God, so to speak, okay, is important. Uh, I want you to look at John 5, 23. In this passage, just a couple books to the right, John 5, 23, Jesus makes this statement. He says, so that all people may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Anyone who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Now, he's saying here that Jesus is declaring here he's equal to the Father. He's saying, you have to honor me equally with the same honor as you honor the Father. So he's declaring equality with the Father. So he's declaring to be God here, okay? Here in this passage, and in fact, he goes on, he says, anyone who does not honor the Son in this way, honor him in such a way that you recognize he is God, you don't honor the Father. So all religions who deny the deity of Christ do not honor God, in the Quran, it very specifically states that uh, Allah says he has no partners and he has no son, and that that's blasphemy to declare that. So they are revealing that their God is not the same God as the God of the Bible. It's a, it's a different God, and it's a God that will not bring them salvation, and so we need to reach out to them with the gospel if we care and love, for, love them, because this is the truth. Jesus is the Son of God and therefore equal to the Father and should be shown the same honor as the Father. We see this unique relationship. God, Jesus is the Son of God, but also he is God the Son, okay? That's what we're seeing as we reveal. And I'd love to Look at all these passages of Scripture, Philippians 2, John 1, uh, 18, 2, all of these passages specifically say Jesus is God, okay? I mean, they don't, 
you know, mess around. I, somebody said, just show me one passage. I said, can I show you 10? <laughs> and then I turned it back on them. Show me one passage where it says he's not. And they couldn't, okay? No passage just says he's not God. Many passages specifically say he is. You see, if Jesus isn't God, then God is not love. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. How is that love if Jesus isn't God? That would be saying, God, I don't want to do the dirty work of dying on the cross. I'm going to make this created being do it. You know, you do it. That'd be like me telling my, my son, I want you to go through this horrible stuff. That's not love on my part. But if Jesus is God, that's love that he was willing to take on a second nature, that of humanity, and allow his own creation to kill him. Wow. God is love because the doctrine of the Trinity is correct. And by the way, if Jesus is, uh, isn't God, then we owe our allegiance to Jesus, not God, because he purchased us with his blood, according to Acts 20, verse 28. It actually says God purchased us with his blood, which means Jesus is God, right? But if Jesus is God, then God is love, and we owe allegiance to him alone. Now, that brings us to the beginning, okay? The beginning of the gospel. That beginning, he's clearly using that phrase. Everyone who is reading this would know he's referring to Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John did the same thing in his gospel. Very first verse, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We see this, he's hearkening back because the gospel, the good news, that's what that word literally means, euangelion, the good news, the gospel is God's plan from the very beginning. He's had this plan from Genesis to Revelation. The whole Bible speaks of this and it reveals that Jesus is the gospel. He doesn't lead us to the gospel. He is the gospel. The Bible has one meta narrative, one grand story, one overarching plan from beginning to end. And he revealed it, God revealed it through what's called progressive revelation. He revealed a little more and a little more and a little more about two things about who God is and about what his plan is. And then it culminates when Jesus comes on the scene because Jesus is God, and he is the plan of God, okay? So it's all about Jesus. The good news is Jesus. It's not just about Jesus so that I can get my get-out-of-hell-free card. It's so that I can have a personal, intimate relationship with the King of kings and Lord of lords. It the good news is Jesus. John 17, 3, Jesus said, this is eternal life. You want to know what eternal life is? He's about to tell us, John 17, 3. This is eternal life, that you might know the Father and the one he has sent, his Son. To know God, and that's not intellectual head knowledge. That is an intimate relationship of love knowledge. That's what life is all about. That is the center of life. 
He is the good news. In the Gospel of Mark, especially, we will see he is the lowly servant who stoops to pick us up. He is the lowly servant. That's the kind of person, by the way, you can love. It's not us reaching up to God. (laughs) We're running a mile away, 100 miles away from him. It's him stooping down to pick us up. That's the gospel. He's the lowly servant. Ah. Max Lucado, in his wonderful book, God Came Near, he says, the word became flesh. He was touchable, approachable, reachable. And what's more, he was ordinary. If he were here today, you probably wouldn't notice him as he walked through a shopping mall. He wouldn't turn heads by the clothes he wore, the jewelry he flashed. Just call me Jesus, you can almost hear him say. He was the kind of fellow you'd invite to watch the Rams-Giants game at your house or the Vikings-Giants game. That's today, by the way. (laughs) He'd wrestle on the floor with your kids, doze on your couch, and cook steaks on your grill. He'd laugh at your jokes and tell a few of his own. And when you spoke, he'd listen to you as if he had all the time in eternity. He wants to talk to you. He wants to listen to you. Do you talk to Jesus? Do you pray to him? He loves. He loves it when you talk to him. He invites all of us to have that personal relationship. But he's the only way to the Father. John 14, 6, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. There is no use arguing that there are many ways to God and that all religions have some good in them. Jesus didn't leave that open. He is the most divisive person on the planet. Matthew 12, 30, he specifically said, if you are not for me, you are against me. There's no middle ground. But he has the credentials to back it up, to back up his claim, which is the resurrection. We get to get to that at the end of the book. Okay, we'll get there not so soon. But he gives us the credentials. Uh, If there was only one cure for a particular cancer that you have, would you argue that it's not fair that turnip seeds aren't just as good? No, right? Especially if there was evidence for the cure. You would say, okay, I want that one, right? Okay, Jesus is the only cure for sin. And he gives us the evidence of the resurrection. He also deeply cares like no other. I want to finish with an illustration from Mike Bickle's book, Passion for Jesus. This is a true story. A faithful Christian woman in her early 40s gathered the courage after many years to resign from her job, leave the home of her godly parents, and go to work for a missions organization overseas. Molested as a child, she had lived much of her life controlled by fear. She had not yet overcome her fears, but her sparkling eyes and bubbly personality covered up her lack of confidence and low self-esteem. 
She longed to marry a godly Christian and serve the Lord with him, but the right man had never come along. The woman was therefore surprised and pleased when a single Christian man about her age who worked for the same missions group began showing her attention. Warm smiles, genuine appreciation for her conscientious work, little compliments dropped here and there. She was even more surprised when he suggested they, that they begin having lunch together several times a week. She felt so plain, so ordinary, so undesirable. But the more the woman got to know her new friend, the more she liked and respected him. She could tell the feelings were mutual. One day at work, the man asked if he could take her out for dinner. That evening, she glanced up from the menu and saw him gazing at her with a tender, loving expression in his eyes. I'm sorry for staring, he said, a little embarrassed. But you're so beautiful that you take my breath away. The woman could hardly believe her ears. Beautiful? Me? She opened her mouth to protest and put herself down, but something stopped her. He sees you the way I see you. An inner thought seemed to say, overwhelmed beyond words, the woman's face broke into a radiant smile. Now, how do you think God sees you? Do you cringe at the thought? God's estimation of your beauty comes from his great love for you, not as a result of any inherent goodness or beauty of your own. God is not the cold, aloof, rigidly legalistic being that religion has made him out to be. He's not the demanding, impatient God so many of us have struggled to please. Oh, how the Lord longs for his church to receive a revelation of his ravished heart, utterly overwhelmed with delight for us, even though we may not like or believe in ourselves. How his heart aches for us to become aware of his fascination with our beauty, and respond to his yearning glance. Have you trusted in him as your Messiah? Have you surrendered to him as your Lord and God? Have you entered into deep relationship of love with Jesus that he designed for eternity? Let's pray. Jesus, you are the gospel, the good news. I remember years and years ago when I repented of my sins and I placed my faith in you and began to walk with you. So many times I stumbled, so many times I still stumble. And you pick me up and you brush me off and you love me just the same. Your love never changes. You are faithful, even when I'm not. And I'm so happy, so deeply happy to know you. I ask for my family here, and my friends. I ask that you'd help each one here draw near to you, afresh and anew. Maybe they've wandered a bit. Maybe they've never met you personally. And for the first time, they want to turn from their sin and turn to Jesus. I pray you draw them, that you call them, that you choose them. And I thank you for that. What a great plan.